This week on Writers Inc. I found that I was spending 12 hours a day hunched over my keyboard trying to make some kind of writing happen. And every once in a while, it would work. Every once in a while, for like 15 minutes or so, I would be a writing machine and I would get an entire draft of a chapter done in that time. And then I would be right back to where I was before, where I couldn't write at all. So once I finally did get through writing that book and reworked my workflow so that the writing would maybe start to come on command, I started to ask myself, why do I have to bang my head against the wall for 12 hours a day to get those 15 minutes of good writing? Why can't I just sit down and do the 15 minutes and then get on with the rest of my day? And that's where I started to dig into the psychology, uh, the neuroscience of creativity, and um, also start to question what I had learned about productivity. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Ho, ho, ho. Happy Halloween. <laughs> what? Did I nail it? What was that? <laughs> I miss one week and then you come back with the worst (laughs) intro ever on this show. (laughs) It's Halloween. Come on, you guys. Do you guys decorate for Halloween? Like, is the whole house done up? Yeah, we don't just see my walls. It's every time. Yeah. Yeah. We just just sing songs here. (laughs) Halloween songs. I put some some decorations outside. Me and my daughter actually went to a... uh, Went to an awesome local pumpkin patch this weekend, and we picked out pumpkins, so it was nice. Oh, I, I went on the little app that came with the lights that are on my porch, and I changed them red. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, nice. That's close. So our porch is red. Yeah, it took me all of 12 <laughs> seconds to decorate for are Halloween. Are you colorblind? You know Halloween's <laughs> orange, right? Yeah, I, I did orange first, and it didn't look right, so I figured I'll go to orange for Thanksgiving. Of course. Yeah, because why, cause why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe some red and green for Christmas. I don't. I don't know. It's, it's a, way easier than going on hanging stuff. Uh, speaking of missing last week and uh, worst intro ever, I have a bone to pick with both of you guys. Uh oh. For for one, Jay, I love how you um, just said I went to the zoo with zero context. Like <laughs> like I just missed the show to go hang out at the zoo by myself. That was my. That was really really awesome. An afternoon at the zoo with Zach. Yeah, Hannon. like hey guys, I can't be on Writers Inc. because I'm gonna go hang out at the zoo. Like. Didn't add in any of the context that I was chaperoning for a field trip for my daughter. <laughs> oh, I, I, I just figured somebody answered your make a wish and, and took you. <laughs> I, I didn't want to go into any detail because I wasn't sure what you wanted to share publicly, but yeah, it's always been my dream to hang out with a red panda and they finally made that come true. So, <laughs> nice. But, uh, but yeah, so no, that, that was it. But also um, so I got an email a couple of days ago from Joanna Penn and she was asking me about something else. But at the beginning of the email, she goes, hey, I just want to let you know, here are some things you can get to hang stuff on your wall without nailing in your wall. 
and like sent me a link on Amazon. So she's like, even she's on the train now of uh, <laughs> how my walls are blank and trying to help me out. <laughs> a lot of people so are very concerned. A whole thing now. Yeah, people are concerned. You know, like it just feels like you just haven't moved in yet. You got to do something about it. I, I think we need a GoFundMe page for Zach's walls. <laughs> <laughs> we can make the target the target goal be like forty nine ninety nine. Yeah. Just enough to buy him like two just, pictures, just to buy me some little adhesive hangers. You, you got to be careful with those. Like we, I bought a whole bunch of mixed tiles. You know, you've probably seen the, the ads for yeah. these things. So like, you send off your pictures. They send you a box full of stuff, and and they've got like sticky tape on the back. And I put them all upstairs in the, in the hallway. And like these things, they fall. And it's always at like three thirty in the morning. They don't yeah. fall like in the middle of the afternoon. You know, when you're up and about, it's it's always you know that weird yeah. noise that you hear in the middle of the night. And then you got to go and investigate. Um. So yeah, kind of keep that. But just put a nail hole in the wall like a normal person. <laughs> or or just keep it how it is and just live like this. <laughs> uh, welcome to Better well, Homes and Gardens podcast. We're just <laughs> glad you had a good time at the zoo by yourself. That's all that matters. It was it was all, I, it was funny. Like our I guess her class actually had several chaperones, so I was only in charge of two kids, like my daughter and then one <laughs> other kid. There were other parents from other classes walking around with like four or five kids, and I was like, man, I got to eat. Maybe they just didn't want to put more than two kids with me. I don't know. They're like, look that at that guy. Just, just don't, don't give him any other kid. Except yeah, they, they look at me and they're like, no, we're just like going to give good. him two kids. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take our chances with the lion cage. <laughs> I haven't gotten roped into any of that yet. My, my wife just went on a field trip to like a local pumpkin patch with all the kindergartners. Um, but I, I can't imagine watching like other people's kids. Like I tell my daughter to take my hand so that I don't get lost. You know, like I, when we go somewhere, yeah. like I can't imagine having to be responsible for somebody else's child. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't want me to be. So Pum I'm pumpkin patch is a cool kindergarten field trip. My, my daughter for her kindergarten field trip went to a Christmas tree farm and it was the lamest thing ever. <laughs> like they had them go to different stations. And one of the stations was like, this is how we type a Christmas tree to put on someone's car so they can take it home. And I was like, this sucks. This is like the worst field trip ever. That's like the old Simpsons uh, episode where they go to the, the cardboard box factory for the field trip. <laughs> it was terrible. It was like, this, so the zoo was a very welcome change. The did zoo did you tell the kids like, hey, that tree's been growing for the last six years and they just killed it and stuck it on that person's car? <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> like just, That's pretty much what it was the tree, like. tree had all these aspirations for its life and like somebody just comes along and chops it down and decorates it with lights and then throws it out on the curb a week later. <laughs> yeah, they were like, here's a state here. There was a station. They were like, here's how you flock a tree. And it was, oh God, it was so lame. So, but whatever. Anyway, awkward. What are you guys working who's, on? Who's, who's doing NaNoWriMo? I'm writing now, but I'm not doing it for NaNoWriMo. <laughs> yeah. How about you? You doing it? I, I mean, not. no, like I, I'm writing every day anyway. So like, I always yeah. forget that it's even November. Um, but like, I, I'm getting all these emails from people with like their ideas. Like, is this a good idea for NaNoWriMo? It's, you know, just, just write the book. Just get it. Uh, October Rimo. Like, it doesn't matter. Just get it, get it done. <laughs> yeah. I've never done it. I, uh, like I, I, I think it's cool and I appreciate people who do it, but I've always been in the same boat of what you guys just say where I'm just always writing. And I know, like I've had people tell me, well, like, you don't have to start a new project. Like you can be in the middle of project, but like I've gotten so far away just because of how I know I am mentally from even paying attention to word counts that at this point, it just wouldn't even be a good thing for me to do. Like, it, so to even like be paying attention to any of that stuff. So 
Um, yeah. Like, good luck to everyone who's doing it. If if you get get the opportunity, talk to an agent and ask them how much they hate December. Oh, because <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, they, that's they, actually they, that's a good point. So like, so that's probably a really bad time to be fishing out for an agent. <laughs> oh, I, absolutely. Like they get. I so never much, thought about that. They they get so many submissions, and ninety nine point nine percent of it is complete rubbish. You know, because people write it and like they don't edit it. They don't do anything like, OK, I've got the book done. I'm going to send it off. They write their query letter and they just kick it out. And it's like, it, yeah, it's it's it's, it's bad. I've like, never I'll, thought of that. Uh, yeah. Never, never, ever submit. Like, it, honestly, like the, the end of the year, like this holiday season is just bad in general because yeah. um, everybody, you know, everybody in the publishing industry, they're all just phoning it in. You know, like this time of year, you're better off waiting until spring. But yeah, November, December, bad. <laughs> so that's a great time to get all those NaNoWriMo submissions <laughs> when they're already <laughs> tuning out anyway. <laughs> uh, have either of you watched the, the watcher yet on Netflix? I have not. I have not. No. Oh man. I was hoping to talk to somebody about it. Um, I did end up watching Dahmer after you, after you talked me into it a couple weeks ago. That was, ago. that was pretty good. Um, and our, and our buddy, um, Patrick, he had, yeah, um, some, one of the reporters from Dahmer, like on, on his show, um, not too long ago, he sent me a link to that. Um, yeah, I just, I went down that Dahmer rabbit hole and just listened, watched that one, watched the one about the tapes and, and dude, dude was crazy. I mean, like, (laughs) but like beyond crazy, I mean, this is like, you know, John Wayne Gacy probably thought that Dahmer guy's really messed up, (laughs) you know, like like it was, that was another level. Um, I definitely appreciated what you said to me when it was just me and you a couple weeks ago and how you watched it, like just, uh, for your writing, and and how to write a character like that? I mean, I, I definitely appreciate it from that aspect and the way that they they portrayed it on there. Um, but it but as J, it was really hard to finish though. I mean, it was it was it's brutal. Yeah, they don't shy away from anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, you do you do gain a lot. You know, like all those awkward moments that make you cringe. Like you know, that's him leading what he feels is his best life. You know, like that's normal to him. Um, yeah. And I guess that that's the, the takeaway you kind of have to get if you're going to try to write somebody like that. What uh, I I think I have the watcher in my queue. Which what's that? Give us the synopsis on that. It's basically a family um, in New Jersey. They buy this really big house uh, for like three million bucks, and they move in, and they get a letter, um, an anonymous letter in the mail from somebody who basically just dubs himself the watcher. Um, it's like somebody just watching the family and just calling them out on all these different things. And it just gets creepier and creepier. Uh, but we were like three episodes in before we learned that it was actually based on a true story, which makes it even wilder. Um, because then you get out there and you start researching that and what happened to the real family. But um, it's, it's a very cool little mystery. Um, I like that Netflix actually wrapped it up um, in, in a particular way. Like they, you know, And if you read, I, I don't want to give anything you know way related to the story, but um, they had to do something to tie it all up. And, which, and it's different from what happened in real life, but they still made it work. So again, very, very cool storytelling. Hmm. Okay, cool. Well, I want to give a shout out to Mike Flanagan because I'm about halfway through the Midnight Club and loving it. Really good. Really good. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, highly recommended too. Yeah, that, that's one I'm going to check out too. Um, Piper Brook and I watched like uh, the first episode. I was kind of in and out, um, but he was really excited for it because he read the books as I was telling you when he was a kid, the Christopher Pike books that's based off of so um I'm, I'm definitely i'm definitely interested in checking that out cool well uh before we take care of some business i just want to uh i want to do a little tease here and just say you guys are going to want to tune in next week because we have a we have a change coming to the show and we're not going to tell you what it is you're just going to have to show up for episode number 161 to find out so there's that uh if you are uh really 
impressed by our new website, head on over to Word and Pixel at wordandpixel.com. They can uh, they will definitely take care of you. And as always, a big thank you to our friends Tara and the team over there at Kobo Writing Life. You get to uh, if you're going to take a book wide, you've got to go with Kobo because you set your price, you keep your rights. And you get monthly uh, promotional opportunities, all without any exclusivity agreements. Link in the show notes, or you can start it today at KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who is our Halloween interview today? I'm actually sending this one back to you because you brought this guy in. Why don't you tell everybody? Yeah, this is David. His name is pronounced David. No, it's Kadavi. That's a terrible <laughs> joke on his last name. Uh <laughs> I met David in Phoenix at CX. Uh, David and Joanna and I were hanging out for a while, and uh, he's he's a really great nonfiction writer, a big thinker. Uh, he's got uh, the the book we're going to be talking about is Mind Management, not Time Management, and uh, I think you guys are, are are really going to enjoy it. He's got some very practical uh, tips for writers and creatives in general. So here he is, David Kadavi. So, uh, how is your dirty electric, man? Ooh, uh, <laughs> oh gosh, you're really throwing me out of the bus, Jay. <laughs> I'm going to be getting, everybody's going to think that I'm some sort of conspiracy theorist or, or, or you know, that, uh, everybody's going to think I'm really quite wacky, but, uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm as staying as far away from dirty, dirty electricity as I, as I possibly can. Uh, I'm up in a, cabin in the mountains right now and i feel much better up here um because the apartment building they live in is uh just uh it's very dense and um i've discovered that i'm quite sensitive to something called dirty electricity which is uh sound engineers known know as line noise and it's apparently the way that appliances turn ac into the proper amount of current and voltage. I hope that I'm not saying that in, in, incorrectly. Um, but uh, yeah, I certainly feel a lot better and can think a lot more clearly when I'm not surrounded by it. Hey, man, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, we, we met in Phoenix and, uh, and we somehow got onto the topic of sensitivities and, and being a musician, line noise, dirty electric is absolutely 100% real. It's not, uh, it's not something made up. Right. So, well, the thing that the thing is controversial is, is, is the effect that it might have on an organism such as our bodies, which I think is an odd, I think that's an odd thing. I don't think it's terrible to be skeptical about something like that, but, but for those who, who believe that uh, that that's just not possible? That is is I think an absurd belief because we're using non ionizing radiation radiation and all sorts of medical procedures and and stuff. So it, it clearly uh, can affect the 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 cells in your body, uh, which are very fragile um, little things. I'm not a biologist, so <laughs> but uh, but anyway, yeah. So I think it's like the effect. Whether or not it affects somebody's body or can affect their, you know, give them brain fog or whatever. I guess that's the controversial thing, but I, I don't really care if this is placebo because it works. <laughs> I just uh, needed an excuse to say dirty electric because it just sounds like a 70s funk band or something. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the term. It <laughs> sounds like, uh, it sounds like uh, bullshit. Am I allowed to say bullshit <laughs> yeah, on this? You can, yeah. Okay, it sounds like bullshit. 
and, and so I it just, it, it sounds like something that somebody in a marketing department somewhere made up. <laughs> oh, it's dirty electricity. Line noise seems a little bit more, less like it's designed to um, breed uh, some kind of paranoia, I guess. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, you know, and for, for the next guest who I know has sensitivities to electric, I'll use line noise instead of, well, instead of dirty it's, electric. It sounds like a lot of us <laughs> authors have these sensitivities as I sign up for the 20 books for 50 K and they're like, no <laughs> fragrances of any kind. These people are definitely allergic to it. So I guess they, they probably have uh, multiple chemical sensitivity and stuff. So there's probably a lot of people out there listening who are like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, um, uh, yeah, which I, I guess it, this is the perfect job for us because we can kind of like try to be in control of our environment and, um, and, and that's hard to do if you're like going to an office every day, for example. Well, yeah, I think creatives, writers, creatives in general tend to be more highly sensitive in, in all ways. Uh, I think they, they tend to observe more things than, than other people do. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yes, we're very observant. It's interesting that you bring that up because I was just telling somebody the other day that the way I got started out doing creative work was I loved to draw growing up. And so uh, I feel like I, I I had to get really good at observing and like, what does something look like? And one of the biggest revelations for me in that process was that objects don't have outlines on them. Like when you draw something, you immediately try to just draw the outline of it, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> There's not an outline. Leonardo da Vinci has written extensively on, on this. Um, it's, it, it's just, uh, you, that the outline is in your mind. So yeah, it's interesting. You talk about being observant, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I want you to take us back, um, you you open your wonderful book mind management which we're going to talk about uh i absolutely loved it but you open it talking about something at the time 6 years earlier you got an email that that kind of changed your life you said it would mostly land in a spam filter um but it wasn't uh can you tell us about that email and and how it changed your life yeah uh well actually there were two emails that i can think of that you might be referring to and one was from an entrepreneur who had uh, built and sold a company to Google, was a Stanford professor, and was working on this app. And he was working on it with Dan Ariely, who is this renowned behavioral scientist. And he didn't tell me this in the email, but he emailed me and said, Hey, I've done, you know, I'm Stanford professor. Uh, sold a company to Google. I'd love to talk to you. I love this blog post that you've written called Mind Management, Not Time Management. And that email, I was busy. So I responded like, well, I'm kind of busy. Can we talk in like three weeks or something? Which is hilarious in retrospect, because this was definitely somebody to respond to an email uh, from, but I was uh, heads down on some stuff. Uh, the second email is the email that I got a couple of years later that was saying, oh, this 
productivity company that you're working with is selling to Google, um, the, totally related to the previous email that I talked about. And uh, we need to sign, sign some documents to approve the sale to Google. Uh, and so I did. I didn't have any... Even if I hadn't signed the documents, the company still would have sold to Google. It wasn't like my share of the company was so large that uh, I would have been able to stop the sale to Google or something. But uh, I did. I signed the documents and then I got sort of a surprise payday. And it was all based upon uh, the ideas that I've now shared in this book, My Management, Not Time Management. You get a lot of interesting emails. I was talking about the one where you got offered a book deal. Oh, that email too. <laughs> There's really just a few emails that have that have changed my life. And uh that would be another one. Uh that would probably be the third. I don't know if there's a lot more. Uh yeah, that was uh, 2010 and I had wanted from the moment that I had heard of South by Southwest, the technology part of the conference anyway, had wanted to speak at that conference. Just like in my cubicle in Nebraska at the architecture firm, you know, looking over the shoulder of the IT guy, like, oh, that looks like so cool. I'd love to go to that thing. And then years later, I just said, well, I'm going to try to pitch. I'm going to try to see if I can speak at South by Southwest. Uh, I, I promise this is going to the email that you're talking about, even though it sounds like it's not. Uh, and I made one proposal one year and it didn't feel like it was great. It, it didn't get accepted. And then I made a proposal the next year, but this time I wrote a blog post uh, trying to get as much traffic as possible so I could get votes for my panel idea for South by Southwest. And in the, when I wrote that blog post, I got an email from an editor at Wiley saying, hey, we love this idea. Would you like to write a book about this? Yes, I very much would love to write a book about this. By the way, didn't get to speak at South by Southwest, but once I got that book deal, then I got invited to speak at South by Southwest. Funny how that happens. Yeah. So I got that email saying, uh, would you like to write a book? And I said, yes, I would. And it was tricky because I hadn't, I wasn't really much of a writer. I had a blog. I had had a blog for six years or so. I've had one since 2004, but it was off and on, off and on. And occasionally I would write a larger article and I had just recently done so. And apparently it was for a concept that uh, could be expanded into a marketable book. So there, there began my journey as an author, my first time writing a book. And I figured it couldn't be that difficult because I was a designer and I had very many times been through this process of not being able to find a solution to a problem, to a creative problem. So I figured I could get through it. I had six months to write a 300-page book, which sounds really crazy now because it takes me way longer than that to write books. And I found that as I was writing this book, I cleared away everything. I had fired my clients cleared away my schedule, uh, just disconnected from my social life and had all the time in the world. And I found that I was spending 12 hours a day hunched over my keyboard, 
trying to make some kind of writing happen. And every once in a while, it would work. Every once in a while, for like 15 minutes or so, I would be a writing machine. And I would get an entire draft of a chapter done in that time. And then I would be right back to where I was before, where I couldn't write at all. So once I finally did get through writing that book and, you know, reworked my uh, workflow so that the writing would maybe start to come on command, I started to ask myself, why do I have to bang my head against the wall for 12 hours a day to get those 15 minutes of good writing? Why can't I just sit down and do the 15 minutes and then get on with the rest of my day? And that's where I started to dig into the psychology, uh, the neuroscience of creativity, and um, also start to question what I had learned about productivity, what I learned about things such as time management. I was a big time getting things done uh, fan, still am, was very into time management and being productive. Uh, but I found that that stuff didn't really prepare me for that particular challenge of, of writing. And so that is where I started this uh, pretty much decade long deep dive that I share in mind management, not time management. Uh, you have uh, at the top of one of the chapters, you have a quote from GH Hardy that says four hours creative work a day is about the limit. Uh, how, how, how close is that to, to accuracy for most people? I, I think that for most people, it probably is way at the upper limit for certain types of creative work. I'm, I'm talking about that high effort, you are concentrating and focusing hard on trying to make some creative work happen. I do think that we have a lot more leftover uh, fuel that we can use. But it's a different type of creativity, a different type of mental state that you have to be inhabiting. I remember reading that John McPhee uh, wrote for like seven hours a day, something like that. And I thought, that's crazy because everybody that you read about, they write for two hours, four hours, something like that. But come to find out, he actually has this or had this method where he would uh, type out notes and sort of cut and paste different things together and collect together these big folders of all the notes of all his research. And then he would write. Okay. So in my mind, yeah, that's writing. It is writing, but it's not, I don't think what most people think of as writing. Most people think of as writing as you're sitting down, your fingers are moving. uh, The, the keys are hitting the paper, the, the, the letters are showing up on the screen, whatever the devices that you're using, and you are developing something that you'll be able to ship in some form. Now, I think that this lower, uh, like less stressful, less effortful type of writing where you're, say, taking notes on something or brainstorming a character profile or brainstorming uh, some world building, things like that. I think that we have a little bit more fuel in our tanks for that. Do you consider revision writing 
in the same sen- in, in the same definition you just used. Yeah, I think that you could certainly put it under the umbrella of writing. I personally am not a big revision writer. I'm I very much prefer to just rewrite from scratch. Uh, and I think I think that depends on a person's approach. Um, I like to uh, I like to start from scratch and sort of trust that I've had all the information seep into my brain. I want to be able to recall extemporaneously from memory whatever it is that I wrote in the book. This might be different for uh, some of the fiction authors. I don't know. I've been doing a little, a little bit of fiction too, and I sort of feel the same way about it. Like I want to, I want it, the story to be uh, like the best version of the story, and I think that that comes through retelling. It reminds me of um, like Homer's work, like the Iliad. This stuff came from oral traditions. It came from storytellers traveling around and telling the same stories over and over again. And they would change this and that thing. And that was how people remembered the stories. And it was passed down and eventually got written. And now we still, now we have the Iliad and, you know, it's, it's Homer's work, whether Homer existed or not. But I kind of like that idea that there's just this sort of collective memory of from retelling over and over again that uh, the the story has it's the best version of the story because it's the most memorable one. It's the one that people remembered when they told it over again. Um, but yeah, I do think that re- revision can qualify as writing underneath that umbrella. Uh, I mean, in the book, I talk about these seven mental states of creativity that. I like to arrange my work according to, and uh, a lot of people uh, seem to resonate with uh, these categorizations of creative work. And so that would be what I would call polish, uh, which is for me, that the type of energy that I want when I'm doing revisions would be, that would be the type of, you know, afternoon at a cafe that's maybe a little noisy even and that's a good energy for me to be doing revision work that's very different from first thing in the morning i need quiet and i'm going to be sort of banging out some words that are going to definitely need some revision or need some rewriting later on uh and and this is where i think um, this is where I think we can find that extra energy is if we find and identify these different sort of types of creative energy, these different categories of creativity, then you can kind of work like a perpetual creativity machine. It's sort of like if you are riding a bicycle and you're applying pressure to the pedals, you don't want to necessarily be applying the exact same pressure all the way around like you're i mean maybe ideally you are right but if you're on just like a crappy bike that doesn't have 18 gears and you're trying to get up a hill you're gonna bring your weight up and then you're gonna push down at the part of the stroke that is actually pushing you up the hill um 
And I think that we can think of creativity the same way where there is these very effortful things that you're doing. And then there's the things that, uh, where you're inhabiting a different type of energy and you can make all these pieces work together so that you're constantly propelling that work forward. Interesting. I love that. Um, I want to go from one end of the spectrum to the other. So we're talking about idea generation, uh, phases of creativity, drafting. Um, I know JD is going to appreciate this. Tell us how you got ad space in Times Square. Uh, Yeah. So a friend of mine had actually done this for one of his clients. He found that he could advertise a book in Times Square uh, using a service called blipbillboards.com. And I decided I would try that, but I did a little bit of brainstorming before I, I wanted to think about, well, if I'm going to, yeah, you do, you advertise it up there and you can get, uh, an ad up there for 15 seconds for like as little as $20, as little as $20 and it's 15 seconds. Well, that sounds pointless, right? who's going to see your book Times square is very busy. Um, and even if they did see it, who's going to be so compelled by your ad for a book <laughs> that they just like pull out their phone and go straight to Amazon or whatever and buy your book. Well, but that's not the point. What you can do with advertising your book in Times square is you can do what's called a pseudo, you can create a pseudo event. And a pseudo event is uh, the term coined by Daniel J. Borston in the book, The Image. Um, and it is basically events that are created in order to be covered in media. And almost anything in the news is a pseudo event, much of the time. Most leaks are pseudo events. It's like, oh, this was leaked. Uh huh. Sure. It was leaked because it's more powerful when, say, a journalist covers this thing that was leaked than if you were to just go out and say the thing uh, that that was that was leaked. Or if uh, the classic example that Borston gives is if a hotel is having their 25th anniversary banquet uh, and they hold this event, um, that it is used to reinforce this idea that they are important to the community uh, when really the event they organized themselves, if they were so important to the community, somebody would have organized it for them, but it's going to be covered in all the newspapers, et cetera. And so that pseudo event gets, gets covered uh, and um, reinforces this idea that, oh, this is, this hotel is very important to our community. So I decided I would make a pseudo event out of, my ad in Times Square. It's only up there for 15 for 15 seconds, but if I get pictures and video of it, uh, video especially because pictures are so easy to fake, uh, then I could show people that I advertised in Times Square. And um, and then they'll share it online or it'll it just sort of will blow people's minds, even though it truly kind of means nothing. Um, so I came up with a couple ideas. One of them was, my book is called Mind Management, Not Time Management. I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss. 
uh, I listen to his podcast a lot. And one of the questions he asks his podcast guests, every single one is, if you could put a message on a billboard in a high traffic place such as Times Square, what would you put on there? And I've always wanted to answer that question. And I've always wanted to say mind management, not time management. And so I decided to make one of my ads extremely plain and have it just say mind management, not time management. Uh, I tried to not even have the book on there, but they wouldn't let me advertise that way. It was too vague. So I put the book tiny uh, on there. And then I hired a photographer uh, that off of Craigslist to uh, be there in Times Square. And I purchased ads during this one little one hour block and told that photographer, please get a video of that, of the context of Times Square and then a video of, of, the, of the ad. And so the, uh, they did that. And then I shared it on Twitter and I said, hey, Tim Ferriss asked his podcast guests, what message would they put on a billboard? I put mine in Times Square. And I shared that on Twitter, tagged Tim Ferriss on there. Lo and behold, Tim Ferriss retweeted it. So there, just with my, you know, as low as $20 Times Square ad that lasts for 15 seconds, I got uh, exposure to Tim Ferriss's 1.8 million uh, followers on Twitter. Another thing that happened from that was I, when the ad was going to go up, I tried to get some of my people on my email list who were in the New York area to take pictures of it and said, hey, I'll send you a free book if, uh, if you're able to get a picture of this ad. Now, a couple of people tried, but it sounds like they didn't manage to get their schedules to work out. People who are in New York are very busy. But it also turned out that somebody on my email list organized events for the New York Public Library. And she was very excited that I had uh, advertised in Times Square and uh, invited me to speak in their CEO series at the New York Public Library. Uh, over Zoom, I didn't have to fly to New York or anything. And so she set it all up. She did a fantastic job. And, uh, and she, even in the process of that, got the New York Public Library to stock all of my books. And so we did the event and it went great. There's a video of it up on their CEO series page. So there's some other uh, CEO series talks up there, including Seth Godin, Marie Forleo. Uh, I think Chris Gilbo might be one of them. There's a, just a, a bunch of big names. I'm up there. There's not a huge list there. Uh, so now I've spoken at the New York Public Library as well. They've stocked, uh, they've stocked the books and, um, and, and that worked out, uh, I think, really, 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 really well. Uh, so that's just a couple of the wins that I've gotten from, I spent maybe, aside from testing and then hiring the photographer, you know, all inclusive, I think it, it was less than $500 or so. I've shared some of my income reports. Uh, and then also by writing about it, I referred some people to blip billboards for which I got a credit, which paid for some of the advertising that it cost for me to put it on Times Square. So it's really this virtuous cycle that keeps on uh, the gift that keeps on giving. And here we are talking about it on this podcast as well. It's, it's a pseudo event. It is, uh, it was really a fun marketing thing to do. 
Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it, it's brilliant. You know, you, you, you told me the story and I think there's some serendipity and some luck involved, but there's also a lot of forethought. Um, you know, you, 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 you said, you know, I really had to think hard about how I could create a pseudo event and not just rely on the event itself. Um, so I just love the story. Well, it, you're absolutely right about luck. Um, and I am not somebody who takes any offense at being called lucky because I am very lucky. And uh, part of the reason why I'm lucky is I try to create situations where lucky things can happen. Um, is that You don't always have control over what's going to happen. But if you do something that seems a little weird, that might not work, it seems a little wacky, people are going to take note of it more. There's, there's more opportunities for things to happen than when you are constantly doing things where you know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, these are these sort of asymmetric opportunities where, okay, it doesn't, it's, it, it doesn't cost me a lot to advertise in Times Square. I'm at a level now where I spend enough on advertising for that for me to spend $500 is, it's not nothing, but it's, it's, it's not breaking my bank. Um, but it's, it's more fun and exciting than spending $500 on ads on Amazon, which I do, you know, a few times over every month, uh, anyway. And, uh, now I've got photos and videos of my book being advertised in times square. And for my, for, I think it was especially good for my book because my book is about time management. You know, New York is obsessed with time management. That's times square is the name of the place. And uh, I had somebody the other day say that I was a New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> I had to, I had to correct them, but I I have to wonder if they thought that because something collided in their brain between Times Square and the fact that my ad said bestseller. Um, you know, it's an Amazon bestseller, which is actually a more real bestseller than a New York Times bestseller, but. Uh, but anyway, it's not a New York Times bestseller. And this person thought that it was. And I, I have to wonder if it was because something collided in their brain from uh, just seeing this pseudo event. It's, it's, I love it. It's great. I, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very aspirational and it, and it makes me, you know, it makes me want to come up with those kind of things. Uh, the closest I got to that is I had a, um, in Ocean, Ocean City, Maryland, my family used to vacation there every year. There's a boardwalk and a big public beach that goes for miles. And they have a, a boat that, that goes about 30 yards off the shore with a big electronic display, uh, a moving billboard. And uh, I, I had a book put on there. Uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And it was, it, was, but it was the same kind of thing. Like they only showed it on a particular block and I got video of it. But like the ad itself didn't really do anything. It was, it was more of a pseudo event. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of uh, at the conference that I saw you at in Phoenix. Um, who was it that they bought a Skyrider? Um, oh, yeah. I, it, was some, it was some Instagram account. It, it was accidentally Wes Anderson. Yes. And they had bought a Skyrider. So that was a, a plane with like a banner behind it that had some message on it that was maybe I think it was for their book or something like that. And I thought, Oh, that's, I would love to, you know, advertise one of my books on my book on one of those things and get a video <laughs> of that. I don't think, I don't know conceptually how well it would, uh, 
it would, you know, connect the way that say time management, my management, not time management connected with say Times Square. But also, I mean, even when I had just that, that was accidental too. That was luck. I, I had already decided I was going to advertise in Times Square before I even noticed that there was any sort of conceptual connection there. Sometimes you have to just start creating things and, and do something that seems fun and you don't know what's going to come of it. And that helps uh, keep our jobs exciting. Excellent. Well, hey, man, it's been it's been great talking to you. Uh, I, I have one last question that might uh, kind of pull our conversation to a close. Uh you seem to really enjoy having fun and uh, when, when it comes to your creative output. So um, what are you excited about? What, what's coming next for you? What, what's on your horizon that excites you? Oh, there's so many things. <laughs> um, one of them, uh, one of my things is I've, I'm doing a golf project uh, where I used to be a really serious golfer. And then I realized I had no talent. And so I quit and I didn't play for 15 years. And so I've been playing for the last year and trying to actually get good. I'm using some of the new statistical methods, got a Twitter account for it and everything. And, uh, I'm having a lot of fun with that, collecting the data. I don't know if I'm going to meet my goal or not, but the, the idea is, uh, is to write a book about that, uh, when I'm, when I'm finished with that. Another thing that uh, is going on, I've been working on some fiction stuff, doing that under a pen name. Not going to say what the pen name is because it's not very good, Um, but I'm having a lot of fun doing that. Uh, Working on a short read called 100 Word Writing Habit. I have a uh, a free email course at 100wordwritinghabit.com or 100wordhabit.com, 100 being the number. Uh, so I'm working on that short read. I think that's gonna be fun. And I'm also working on a book, uh, the third in my getting art done trilogy of which my management, not time management is the, is the second. I'm working on a book about finishing, about follow through. I'm one of these people who likes to have a ton of different projects going. I still leave a lot of projects unfinished. And I think that that's fine. And I think that uh, there's a place for people who are very curious and who have a lot of a wide variety of interests. I think there is a way for them to ship projects and be creative. And I think that that is part of the nature of creativity is that when you are trying to solve problems that might not have answers, that every once in a while, you're not going to find an answer. You're not going to finish the project or you're going to decide it's not for you. So I do hope that I finish that book. Uh, That's not going to look so good if I don't, Um, but I'm having a lot of fun writing that one too. And then uh, Digital Zettelkasten, which is one of my short reads. I try to do shorter books and then sort of magnum opi. And Digital Zettelkasten is one that I spent a couple months on. It's maybe 75 pages long. And it's about this note-taking system called Zettelkasten that I use to... uh, I use it for my fiction work as well, but also uh, for my nonfiction to just collect notes on topics. And then uh, from that emerges articles and and books and things like that. And I'm having a lot of fun... uh, making foreign rights deals for that. It's just been a surprise hit. And I just saw, I think my second foreign rights deal for, for that book. And uh, that's been really exciting too. So 
those are some of the fun things that I'm doing right now. Before we talk about the interview, quick reminder that if you are looking to create professional professional print books and ebooks, you can do that with Atticus, the all-in-one book writing software. It's a book editor. It's got a word count, goal tracking, cloud storage, and more, and you can format in just three steps. You can do all that by going to atticus.io. JD, I'm going to go to you first and ask you how many uh, billboard ads you have purchased in Times Square. <laughs> Zero. Um, but Zero. I, I, I do know a guy who's very good with Photoshop who could fake it for you if you want one. <laughs> like I was listening to that. Like I, I love the idea, but you know, like I've been to New York a gazillion times. I've walked through Times Square just as often, and like I couldn't remember or you know tell you one thing that I actually saw up on those billboards. Um, that being said, you know, like where you guys went with the pseudo event, like that's basically how you play that. You know, you get your 15 seconds up there on the billboard, you get pictures, you get video, and you find some way to, to spin that and basically, you know, create some life, you know, just being on a podcast or, you know, advertising or whatever, like all of those things are, are stringing it along. Um, you know, I honestly, I did something very similar back at the start of my career and everybody's kind of heard about my failed attempt to, to, to go to Stephen King's house to get him to sign off on the Forsaken manuscript. Um, you know, like I used some of his characters from Needful Things in it. I needed to get his permission. So we literally just printed up the manuscript, hopped in the car and drove to, to King's house. Um, never actually got there. Um, but Publishers Weekly got a hold of the fact that I tried. Um, and they wrote a, a, you know, like I think it was a two pager about it. And that's what honestly spurred the sales for Forsaken. You know, like the book was selling over. Okay, but like the second that article hit, you know, every librarian saw it, every bookstore owner saw it, and like the sales just went through the roof. Um, so I guess that's another example of a, a pseudo event. Um, I was trying to think of different ones that I've, I've run into over the years. Another one that really struck me uh, years back, uh, there's an author named Ted Decker. Uh, his last name is spelled D-E-K-K-E-R, which is a, a difficult, like most people don't spell it that way. Um, and back in, uh, I guess it was around the mid-90s, early 2000 or so, um, he had a book coming out and his publisher bought the domain name buythisbook.com. So they put the posters up everywhere. They had it on buses and on billboards, every place. But rather than hit, you know, a URL for his name, you know, which would have been difficult to remember, they had buythisbook.com on there. Um, and I think that was one of the first ones he had that actually hit the New York Times list. So there, there's ways to take a particular thing, you know, an event or whatever and, and spin it and basically get a lot more life out of it. I, I love that approach. I mean, I don't know. I, I think the reason they work is because they're really hard to conceptualize and execute on, you know, like if you think about it, it's multi-layered, you have to come up with, with the pseudo event and then you have to figure out how you're going to leverage the pseudo event. And, and, and you don't necessarily know how that's going to happen. So I, I, I think it's really aspirational. I'm, I'm just so impressed that he pulled that off because I think that's a, and your your success rate is probably like pretty low too, just because of the nature of what it is. Well, the trickiest part of all that is you've got to come up with something unique. You know, like this is a one-off event. Like only one person is going to get away with doing X, you know, whatever that pseudo event is. The next person is just copying them and they make it some type of traction, but not a whole lot. Um, so in order for it to work, it's got to be a unique idea. Yeah. the, the th One of the things I loved about that you guys talked about was, you know, obviously he was really thinking outside the box and he, he approached that whole situation with exactly what JD said. You know, I've been to Times Square. Um, I'm, I haven't, but I'm talking about like JD said, and like, I don't remember seeing anything. It's just a bunch of noise. He knew that going in and was like, okay, but that's not the point. The point is, you know, trying to do something with it after the fact. And, um, but even at that point, you know, when you try to go out of your way to make something viral or whatever, it's not an easy thing to do. And you guys talked, you know, you guys talked about 
luck. And he said something, and you guys know I don't take notes, but I actually wrote this down. He had one of the best quotes I've heard on any of our interviews in a while, where he said, I try to create situations where lucky things happen or can happen. That's brilliant because so many people will say, oh, you know, you just got lucky or this is lucky or whatever. But like a lot of times there's a lot of work that goes into creating that luck. And, and I think that that quote from him just general, like may generalize that so well. And it's so true. Like, yeah, some people do just get like dumb lucky with things, but again, he went out of his way to try to create a situation where he could get, he could get on, you know, on Tim Ferriss's radar, or he could go and have this opportunity to go speak uh, and, and have his name alongside um, Seth Godin and, and everyone else he mentioned. Uh, it was awesome. Like, I mean, I, I love that quote. What about the revision thing? Do you guys consider revision to be writing? Man, that was a, that, that was a, I, I was so glad Jay asked him that because I was thinking about that. And, um, that's something for me that has really, um, a, has changed over the last couple years where, um, I've really tried to get in the mindset and we had a guest, I can't remember who it was. We recently had a guest though, who said, um, something along the lines of sometimes the best work can be like cutting stuff instead of like writing more new words. Um, and that's so true. Like, uh, I, t to me, to answer your question, yeah, I've definitely come around where I try to, I try to look at every aspect of the process now as writing. And usually I just call it work because I think for me that frames it different where I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm working on my project. So whether it's research or planning or actually drafting or revising to me, all that is writing and that's all like making progress in your project. And for a long time, like I said, it, it, it really was hard for me to wrap my head around that because similar to what I talked to when we were having the NaNoWriMo conversation earlier, uh, I got really caught up in the whole like chasing word counts thing and feeling like if I wasn't increasing my word count, I wasn't getting anything done. And that's just not true. Well, just to go into process a little bit, um, something that I've pretty much done from the, the first book, you know, I write everything in Scrivener and one of the first documents that I've got in my Scrivener file are, are things that I need to adjust on the next pass. Um, you know, so I come up with this little tidbit of information that I'm going to use moving forward, but I needed to seed it early in, earlier in the novel. So somewhere in chapter 32, I needed to plant that particular seed so that it makes sense when you get to it in chapter 60. So I've got one document with all those types of things. Um, when I'm writing the book, I get to roughly about the 80, 85% mark. Um, and then rather than finish the book at that point, then I go back to the very beginning um, and I basically give it my final pass. So I go through and I clean up, you know, whatever words I, you know, I want to do. I take out whatever I can. I add whatever I need to to make it all consistent. I go through that document and I, and I add those particular seeds. Um, it takes me about a week to a week and a half to basically go through that first 85% of the book. But then when I hit that 85% mark, the entire story is fresh in my head. Um, you know, I know exactly that, it, you know, where everything is going, everything before that point is already tied up. And then that's where I write my ending because, you know, now I know it all, um, you know, and, and I, I learned that early on because, you know, like the book writing process, even if you're fast, you know, if you're writing a book in, you know, a month or three months or whatever, you're going to forget a lot of the stuff that you've got on those earlier pages. Um, so it's really, for me, it's important to go back, you know, refresh on all of it before I write that ending, you know, which really has to, you know, sink it. Yeah. It, it's interesting the way our processes change over time. Uh, you know, the thriller that I'm writing right now, I've never written a book like this before. So I did, I did a dialogue only first draft and my goal was 50% word count. 
And, and that took me five days a week for three weeks. And I, and I, and I did that. And now I'm in the process of doing a second quote unquote first draft where I'm, where I'm filling it in. And I thought the dialogue would, was going to be harder. And it turned out the opposite because what's happening now is, as you said, JD, keeping the story fresh, I went back to the beginning and I only have 50% of chapter one. So I got to put the other 50% in and I'm doing that every chapter. And as I'm going along, I'm like, oh, there's an idea. Oh, I have to go back and plant that. Oh, there's that. And so that what I thought was going to take me less time is now taking me more, but it's in a, it's in a really good way because I feel like when I get through this first draft and, and, and I, what's well, technically a second draft, but when I get through it, all the story bones, all the major plot points, like unless I'm totally missing something, it's all pretty much locked in. And then I can go back through one more time and just clean it up. And, and, uh, but it's that idea of keeping it fresh and you know, like going back to the beginning and, and, and coming through again, because it's hard to keep even like, this is like a 75, 80,000 word novel, but even, even at half that, it's hard to keep all that in your head at one time. Yeah. What, what, another thing that is, was in the same conversation you guys were having was, um, he said something that I really, and this might sound ridiculous now, but I wish this was something I'd heard when I started writing was, um, he differentiated revision and rewriting. Because yes. I remember when I was like listening to a lot of podcasts and stuff and I was, I was working on my first stuff. I would always hear people say, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. When a lot of those people were actually just revising, but as someone who was like trying to see how pros did it and, 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 and kind of learn my own process, it's, it overwhelmed me the idea of rewriting stuff that I had written, but like, that's what I thought people meant. And then I finally came across like, oh no, you can just go back through and actually revise the words you already have there. Um, and, and so I really appreciate that because again, that like gave me a huge headache in my early days. Cause I was like, am I supposed to be rewriting everything I'm doing? And to me, that was like overwhelming and almost to the point where like, I wasn't even sure if I could finish something. So I appreciate do, that. Do you guys have a lot of projects that you start and don't finish? Yes. Lots. Yeah. I don't really, I have, I have a couple that are in the drawer, but pretty much everything I've, uh, most things I've taken all the way to completion. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I, I try to wrap everything up. I've got a lot of things in the air right now, but they're all moving forward in one way or another. Um, I tend to circle back if something stops and, and try to figure out why and, and, you know, fine tune it and try and come up with a way to keep it going. Um, but I don't really have, you know, I was just, I was thinking about, it. I don't really have a whole lot of projects that I've started and just kind of shelved other than like early novels, you know, I was really trying to figure out what I was doing. In all fairness, and this isn't a judgment either way, but I think it's because you two guys are pretty locked into your genre. Yeah. You know, like if you're if you're writing, you know, the thrillers like you are, J.D., or you're or you're writing the post apoc zombie stuff like you are, Zach, like there isn't anything you're going to shelve like. Right. Because like it's pretty much, you know what you're writing, you're writing to that. Uh, I think in my case, the reason I have a lot of unfinished manuscripts is because I've kind of gone off in different directions and tried things yeah. and, you know, and, and it didn't work. And rather than rather than, you know, being a victim of, of sunk cost and continuing to just pour time into something I know is not going to work, I just walk away from it. Yeah, the, you pretty much nailed it on my end. I mean, the, the the couple things that I have like bailed on and not finished were either um, stuff that I was just kind of writing, like that were that wasn't really on brand for me and wasn't my genre. And then I thought it'd be fun to do, and then I kind of realized, wait, I'm going, I'm straying off a little bit too far, far, and I could be doing something else or collaborations. 
that that just fell apart for one reason there. And I know you have some of those. <laughs> a lot um, of those. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I know you have probably a drawer full of those. Um, and, and I got so, a drawer full of Piper Brook manuscripts alone. <laughs> I wasn't going to call him out, but you know. <laughs> I am. You know, in all honesty, like it, it's probably better to do that. I mean, if you think about it, like if you had, you've got all these different genres you're writing in, let's say you've got 10 different books all in different genres. If you just decided to finish them and stuck them all up on Amazon, uh, you know, like people would find them and like they would have no clue who you are as an author because you're going from this type of novel to this type of novel to this type of novel and, you know, just all over the place. Um, so yeah, I think from a brand standpoint and just understanding your overall business model, it's, it's probably a good idea. Um, and I've seen a lot of people make that mistake. They just, they get them all out there and then they just keep going and going. And like, honestly, the best way to fix that is to go back and, you know, once you do dial in whatever your, your genre, your, your style is go out and nix whatever you've got out there that doesn't actually fit that. Just get rid of it, make it go away. I think that's the key, right? I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think a lot of times, especially newer writers, it's funny how we're talking about like, remembering back being a newer writer because I think there's a lot of these things that we forget but like you can't necessarily determine where you're going to end up as far as genre or voice or style you almost have to start somewhere and then be willing to kind of adapt like I know I don't know as much about your early stuff JD because I know you were ghostwriting but like Zach in your case I mean you were kind of writing more horror at first right like that's kind of and if you had said like well that's it and this is I'm a horror writer and this is all I'm going to do and then you look back and you're like, oh, well, I kind of I kind of turned, I kind of pivoted in a certain direction. So I think it's, you know, there's a lot of pressure you put on yourself as a newer writer to have your genre all figured out and know exactly what you're going to write for your entire career. And sometimes you don't know until you get started. I think another part of it, too, is because you're right. Like I, I when I wrote Empty Bodies, I thought I was writing a horror novel. <laughs> I didn't really realize I was writing in this genre that had a, had a lot of a rabid uh, reader reader base. But, you know, I think that there's nothing wrong with writing stuff in multiple genres. Like, but if you're in, if, if you really though do intend to make this a career or a good side hustle where you're really going to make money, like focusing in on one thing is going to be way less of an uphill battle than just writing all this stuff that you like. If you're just writing and publishing for fun, and like, don't expect to make a career out of it. And you just want, it's more of an artistic thing. Then that's one thing. But, you know, as JD said, if you really want to like building a brand and really trying to stay focused, because I mean, we've talked to, and we've talked to people who try to write in different genres and, and, and early on. And, you know, they, we hear that we hear the same things all the time. Well, Stephen King does it. Well, Stephen King is his own genre. <laughs> he can write whatever he wants at this point. You know, um, like I just finished Billy Summers and Billy Summers is, nothing like pet cemetery, you know, but like it's, a, but it was great, you know, cause it's, it's him. But, uh, but yeah, it's definitely an uphill battle if you're, if you're not going to do that. So. Yeah. Uh, David's a super smart guy. I really enjoyed hanging with him in Phoenix and, uh, and I hope you guys got a lot out of the conversation. Definitely check out, he's got a great mailing list. He sends out really short, succinct, um, actionable email. So I would definitely recommend that. So yeah, that's David, uh, David Cadavi and, um, really cool to have him on. JD, who's up next week? This one should be fun. We've got New York Times bestseller Anthony Mara. Uh, his latest book, it's called Mercury Pictures Presents, and it, it's a, just this fascinating look into 1940s Hollywood. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one. Cool. That's going to be fun. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. 
Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.